house, I invite you to open in Scripture this morning to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, and we're going to study um, the last few verses of Matthew's gospel. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. You know, I was surprised that obviously y'all recognize that we're taking a break from Genesis today. Uh, some of y'all were asking this week, where are we going to be? And y'all know the answer to that usually is the next chapter in wherever we're at. And so we travel through Scripture. Well, I was looking uh, last week at where we were going to be, and it's the genealogy of Esau in Genesis chapter 36. As you can imagine, that's, that's a pretty dry passage of Scripture. And uh, I knew the week following vacation Bible school, we may have some visitors here from that. And I was like, you know, I don't think that needs to be their first introduction to how we handle God's Word at First Baptist Cape Spring. And so we took a break just this week. Come back next week, though. If you're a visitor, you come back and you see we're in Genesis 36. You're like, what in the world? Just know we only have 15 chapters to go in the book of Genesis. And we went all the way through that wonderful book uh, here at the church. And so it's been a good time going through that together. But as I was preparing and, and considering where God would lead us today, um, I was surprised to go back in my notes and recognize I've never preached a sermon from the Great Commission. I was fascinated by that. I could not believe it. As missional as we are, as, as globally focused as we are as a church, and you hear me emphasize that, of course we've been to Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. We have that one printed on the back of a t-shirt, okay? But Matthew 28, the Great Commission, I've referenced it a lot, we've went through it a lot, and, and spent some time there, but on a Sunday morning, spending considerable time in this passage, we have not done that. Okay, so we're going to spend just a moment considering what is called the Great Commission. You know, if you travel about 75 miles northwest up the road here to Scottsboro, Alabama, uh, there is an interesting store there nestled in this little place. Uh, it's been featured on shows like Good Morning America, and it's even been a category on the game show Jeopardy. Some of you are laughing or smiling because you've been there before. It's called the Unclaimed Baggage Center. And it is a fascinating place, okay? And I encourage you, if you've never been before, even if you don't have a, a nickel in your pocket, go up there just to see it. It's just a lot of fun. But here's what this store is all about. As the, the name says, this is unclaimed baggage, right? These are things that are lost during travel. And I remember my first time at this store, it was a while ago, and, and I'm walking through and I'm just asking the question, how do you lose that? I mean, really, how do you lose that? If you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. You're looking up in the ceiling and you're seeing, you know, kayaks hanging from the roof or, or Viking canoes even hanging from the roof. I mean, things from, from movie props and, and boa-skinned boots. And uh, at Hollis Jane, I even heard there were some, some of Elvis's gold sequined shoes that were lost there once, okay? And, and here's the thing. How do you lose that? Well, as a church, we need to ask ourselves a considerable question this morning. How do we lose the mission of God? How do we lose it? The mission never changes. It's been the same since the beginning of time, since the creation of the universe. In fact, God in his being is a missional God. The Great Commission is rooted even in his character. So if it's so clear and so plain, how do we lose the mission of God? Well, I want to give you three answers to that question. Uh, but first, the main idea of the text, of course, is very clear. Jesus has given us 
a clear mission. We see that in Matthew 28. Again, if it's so clear, the question being, how do we lose it? Let me give you a few reasons. Number one, we tend to survive instead of thrive as a church. You know what I'm talking about, right? We tend to survive instead of thrive as a church. Uh, it, let me give you some statistics to prove that out. This is not just true of, of, of our church. It's true of a lot of churches in the Southern Baptist Convention of Churches. I'll give you some, tr- some statistics here. Uh, Southern Baptists alone lose more than 900 churches every single year. When we say lose, it, we're not talking about they get lost in the weeds somewhere, okay, or, or get grown up. Or in, no, they literally close their doors. We lose 900 churches in our convention of churches every single year. Seven out of ten churches are either plateaued or declining. We report our statistics as a church every single year uh, to uh, the convention. And they look at those statistics, and there's a reason for them. Numbers do tell a story. They don't tell the whole story. You've heard me say that before, but they do tell a story. And they look at that, and they say, okay, well, 70% of our churches are not growing. That's a problem. Okay, the population is certainly increasing. Why are our churches not growing? And then you look a little further and you find that according to LifeWay statistics, only about 15% of Southern Baptist churches are healthy, growing, multiplying, disciple-making churches. I want to tell you this, church. I, I don't want you to hear me this morning being hard on us. Okay? The reality is we are normative if we're struggling. That's the norm. And if we're doing anything besides just surviving, we are exceptional. And I believe the Lord is doing some good things here. But number two, this is the second reason we tend to lose sight of the mission of God. If you're taking notes today, we, we manage the church instead of leading the church. We manage the church instead of leading the church. If you've ever served on a finance committee or a building and grounds committee or, God bless, the flower committee or the committee on committees, or a deacon, you know the tendency we have to just manage the church and not lead the church. If I can confess this to you this morning, this is where I struggle as your pastor. I enjoy the administrative activities. That's kind of how I'm wired to be. In fact, uh, I recently had to reorient my daily schedule because I would enjoy those administrative activities so much. I would get caught up with it throughout the day and and planning and strategizing, those kind of things, that I would move my sermon planning or prep time to the end of the day. And what would happen is I would get so engrossed and involved in managing that then I would be pressed by the end of the week to study and prepare. You see? But you've all done that. Again, you've sat in those meetings before. We all have that tendency. Number three. We make the church, this is troubling, we make the church instead of Jesus our treasure. Oh me, come on now. How many of you love First Baptist Cave Spring? I do. I love it. I love our history. I love our people. I love this community. We love this place. You see, it's one thing to say you love your church. It's another thing to say I love this church because Jesus first loves this church right? Jesus has to be our treasure. It's so easy for us, especially in this historically rich congregation, to get caught up in the identity of this place and to lose sight of the fact that our identity ultimately rests in Jesus Christ. 
Well, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to walk through Matthew 28. We're going to see the clear mission that God has given, not just to this church, but to every church. And we're going to consider that clarity, what, what, what makes it so clear. And hopefully, if somehow we've lost the mission along the way, we're going to reclaim that mission this morning. I invite you to stand with me and honor the reading of God's Word. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. The Word of God says, Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for how clear it is. Lord, thank you for just how plain and simple you make our mission. Lord, we trust that you'll move on our hearts today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Again, this mission, mission is clear. It's a very simple outline to walk through this passage, and I hope you hold on to it. First, let's consider this together. The mandate of our mission, or the command of our mission, is anchored in Christ's authority. I want you to hear this clearly. Jesus can give this mission to us because he has the authority to give us this mission. Let's consider what he says right there in verse 18. He came near, and he begins with this. All authority has been given to me. We want to jump ahead often and see the actual mission that he gives, but we can't miss that he has the authority to give that mission. He is, in fact, the boss. I know many times whenever Sheree and I leave our children with someone, we have to give them that speech, right? Hey, so-and-so who is staying with you, it's like mommy and daddy, right? They now have the authority to tell you what to do. And and I hesitate to even say that because sometimes I feel like we don't have any authority over them. (laughs) And and so I maybe shouldn't say that often. But the reality is uh, that's, that's the way we should view God, right? He has the authority. Jesus, as God's son, has the authority to give us this mission. You see, Jesus already had authority during his earthly ministry. Matthew's gospel really majors on this point. In chapter 7, we see that he taught as one who had authority. The the crowd saw this. They made that statement. They said something's unique about him. In in chapter 9, we see that he had both the authority to forgive sins and to raise a paralyzed man to walk. So he had authority over these physical things, it would seem. And then we see in chapter 11, he had authority because people said he had all wisdom. He had all wisdom. So he had this authority that had been demonstrated, but something changes in verse 18 because he comes back to this notion of authority, and he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So what changed? What happened? Well, the context would tell us that Jesus was speaking to them as the resurrected Lord and Savior. And so he could say with absolute certainty to them, hey, I've proven to be who I said I was. 
And that's what I tell people when we talk about the resurrection. When I'm sharing the gospel with them, I tell them, listen, all of this truly is wrapped up in the truth of the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. If you get that, you're eventually going to make it to these authoritative statements. But understand something. You have to understand how that changed everything and how these disciples saw Jesus and how we now see him today. Remember, Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, Satan had offered to Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. He had offered to him authority. And yet now Jesus claims authority. Why? Because he had followed the way of suffering and shame and now glorious resurrection. But here's where I want you to get to in this notion of authority. You know, sometimes we can be really hard on certain people in Scripture. We really like to be hard on the scribes and the Pharisees, right? They are those people we look at and we say, man, I never want to be them. Can I tell you something? We're going to see something right here in Matthew 21 and verse 23, if you're taking notes. And we're going to see that they had some issues with authority, kind of like what we do. Listen to what happened here. Jesus entered the temple courts. And while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. And they said, by what authority are you saying and doing these things? And who gave you? This authority. You see, church, our resistance to Christ's mission flows out of our rebellion against Christ's authority. And we all want to be, at our core, rebellious. And that's what's happening right here with the Pharisees. In fact, you could make the argument that ultimately what led Jesus to the cross, of course, under the sovereignty of God, he was led to Calvary. But also, when you look from a very human perspective, it was this challenging of authority that led him to Calvary. Authority is a big deal, church. And we don't like that. We try to grow out of that. But listen, whether you are five or 95, We all are living under the authority of a sovereign God. And because he has that authority, he can tell us what to do, including the mission of God. Secondly, let's consider this. The method of our mission is anchored in Christ's ministry. He gives us a method. He gives us a pattern of what to do, how to carry out this mission. In other words, he gives us the marching orders. He spells it out perfectly clear. We can't get lost in this, okay? But let's walk through it. First of all, he says in verse 19, he says, I want you to go therefore and make disciples. Now, it's easy for us to emphasize going. But I want you to understand that this notion of making disciples, that is the heart of the command of Jesus. In fact, when you look at this passage of Scripture, there really is only one explicit command given. Everything else falls under this notion of making disciples. If if you're a language person, you would say that the imperative statement here is making disciples. And everything else is a describing adjective of what that looks like. So he tells us to make disciples. Well, how how do we do that? What does that process look like? Well, like we said in verse 19, he says, I want you to go all nations. Now, consider this. We've been here before. Again, we printed on the back of a t-shirt, but we need to understand it carefully. And if you've heard this before, this is your opportunity to take a little nap for about five minutes. Acts chapter 1-8 provides the outline for our mission. 
In other words, it very neatly describes geographically and in terms of culture how we are to carry out the mission of God and who that mission involves. But consider this. Maybe turn your paper over and write these things down. They are going to be on the screen. I just didn't want to give you a front and back today. So it's on the screen. You can write these down. Here's what it says in Acts 1.8. Jesus says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in, here's the outline, Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Here, here's the pattern. You ready? Jerusalem. Those are our neighbors. Those are our neighbors. That's Cave Spring. That's what just happened this week at Vacation Bible School. When I think about Vacation Bible School, yes, it is a fantastic event in our calendar of our, for the church. I have no shame in what we invest in that. Why? Because it is a part of the Great Commission. It, he says, I want you to go to Jerusalem. I want you to go to your neighbors and share the gospel. And I think here at First Baptist Cave Spring, when we say we're the heart of Christ in the heart of Cave Spring, it's wrapped up in our DNA as a church. So I think we, we nail that one. We knock it out of the park most of the time. But let's go a little further. Judea, he says. I want you to go to Judea. This is regional mission or cooperation. Regional mission. Now, this is where a church the size of ours, we can struggle a little bit if we're not careful. It's easy for us to get really wrapped up in our identity in this place and to lose sight of the fact that God has a mission beyond here. Okay? And so this is why we cooperate with organizations like the Floyd County Baptist Association of Churches and the Georgia Baptist Mission Board. I told you this past week, uh, a visitor came to spend time here at our church with our people, uh, and they came from one of those entities that we support. And you say, well, why'd they do that? Are we kind of a big deal now? No, <laughs> that's not what it's about. The reality is they know that we as a church intentionally are cooperating with them. That's what they know. And they want to invest back into this place. So you say, well, what does it mean when we write that check to them? Well, that's what it means. It's cooperation. Because there are things happening through them that we could never accomplish by ourselves. Judea. Third, here we go. This one's tough now. Samaria. Samaria. Now, I softened this a little bit. <laughs> I said these were strangers. Uh, the weight of what he says here is a little more pointed than that. Uh, these were, in fact, people who were outcasts to the people listening that day. They were the others to them. They were the people that were completely and totally different from them. The people that were hard to reach, but I would go a step further. These were the people they didn't want to reach. Okay? This is kind of like Jonah. Remember Jonah? Long time. We went through that book together. Jonah, he was called to go to Nineveh. And he fought it tooth and nail, right? And even at the end, when they repented and turned to God, he said, God, I knew that would happen. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Reaching the people you have no desire really to reach. Let me ask you a question. Do you know anyone who is not like you? Do you know anyone who is not like you? Some of you do. You have those work relationships maybe in your family. Uh, but if you don't, I want you to consider that. Consider that with conviction. You see, for me as a pastor, it's really easy for me not to know people like me. I'm just going to confess that to you. Pastors struggle with this. Not just me, but others as well. It's easy for us to get so caught up in ministering to this flock and this congregation, spending time in that office, or spending time even at local restaurants I feel comfortable going to, 
and to lose sight of the fact that we are called to minister to those who are not like us. Church, I want to challenge you. I want to stand with you in conviction and challenge you. Never lose sight of that. Never lose sight of those we are called to go to. And then finally, the ends of the earth. The ends of the earth. That's a global focus. That's wrapped up in the Great Commission. In fact, whenever you talk about the Great Commission, most of the time you think of a global focus. The school I attend right now for seminary, it, their, their slogan is real simple. It's, it's, it's one word, two letters. Go. That's it. Go. And implied in that is go to the nations. Uh, Dr. Danny Aiken, the president of our seminary, he said, listen, all of you are called to go with the exception of those of you who are called to stay. But let the rule be to go. And so we as a church intentionally focus financially and with our people globally. Making disciples. We're going to go. Secondly, we're going to baptize. We're going to baptize. And y'all would think that, hey, as Baptists, we're going to major on this one this morning. We're going to move through this one very quickly, okay? So if you're taking notes, this is what it means to baptize. This is a call to repentance and trust in Christ. That's what this is. And baptism is, is that initial uh, stamp on a believer's life. It's important. And they make a decision to trust Jesus, but we emphasize that there is now this public declaration of them trusting in Jesus Christ. Let me challenge you today. I don't want to take for granted that every person in this room who has trusted Jesus as their Savior has, in fact, also been baptized. Some of you might have said at some point in time, that's just not really for me. Listen carefully. It is a part of the command of God. He calls you to baptism. And so I encourage you, reach out to me. You might have, been, you might have made that decision many years ago but never been baptized. Listen, let me know. We want to celebrate with you as a church. Baptism, conversion. Then he says in verse 20, I want you to teach. I want you to teach. You see, baptism is not the culmination of our mission. It is the beginning of our mission. It's easy for us to get hung up in, in measuring and counting baptisms. I love statistics. It's important to me. It does tell part of the story. When that pool's dry, y'all know it bothers me a whole lot. But what bothers me more, or would bother me more, is if we were not accurately handling the Word of God and teaching people to follow Jesus. And so we endeavor to do that. That's a two-sided mission. I want you to hear this. Number one, those of you who are gifted and called to teach, you need to be teaching. All right, you need to be faithfully handling the Word of God. I praise God for those who do teach in Sunday school classes here. They take the Word of God seriously. They handle it rightly. And many, some of them have been doing it for many years faithfully. I praise God for that. Listen to me. If you're not involved in discipleship at this church, let me tell you, I encourage you to plug in in a deeper way than just Sunday morning. I understand work schedules, all those kind of things happen. We got big families or we have obligations or we have seasons of life that we go through. That's understandable. That happens. Let me know those struggles. I want to walk with you through that. But I also want to encourage you. How can we make you a part of a group that's studying the Word of God or studying the Word of God as a family? How can we come alongside of you even? So many ways, so many ways, but we got to be teaching one another to walk with the Lord. The mandate of our mission is anchored in Christ's authority. The method of our mission is anchored in Christ's ministry. Finally, 
the means of our mission is anchored in Christ's presence. His presence. It's easy for us to get caught up in strategies, programs, all those sorts of things, and to miss the fact that he's given us everything we need to carry out his mission. And it's not a strategy. It's not a program. It's not even financial resources. It's not a staff. It's not talented volunteers. It's not a beautiful facility. It's, it's, it's none of those things. It's his presence. It's his presence. Let me ask you a pointed question. If, if, if everything else was stripped away, if, if, if talented servants within this church were stripped away, if, if our facility fell apart, burned to the ground, whatever, if, if the programs fell apart or proved unfruitful, and, and Jesus himself walked through that front door, would you look at him and say, now wait a minute, before we do what you told us to do, there's a lot of things we got to take care of first. Is that what you'd say to him? <laughs> if he said, go on mission with me right here, would you say that to him? Uh, would you say that, hey, wait a minute, we're, we're borderline bankrupt and you're telling us to reach this community, Lord. I just don't know. I don't know if we can do that. Uh, you're telling us to worship you and, and all the talented musicians we have, they're gone. What are we going to do? He's given us his presence. And that should always be enough. Let me show you in this passage how everything is bookended with his presence here. Go back to verses 16 and 17. I intentionally didn't read this. We, we should consider scripture in like paragraphs together to understand what's going on. Well, the paragraph begins in verse 16. Look at it with me. The 11 disciples, they traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. I love that. They were already obeying Jesus. We don't get what happened there, but he said, I want you to go to this mountain right here. Go wait on me. I'm going to be there. And we talked about, though, Partial obedience a few weeks ago and the danger of partial obedience. Listen, their obedience was not done yet. Notice what happens in verse 17. When they saw him, they worshiped. But don't read past this. But some doubted. You say, now wait a minute. These are the disciples. These are the 11. Right? Judas is no longer in the picture, but the 11 are left. And it says that they worshiped, but some of them doubted. Consider Thomas. Doubting Thomas. Bless his heart for all history. He's been called Doubting Thomas. Let's give the old boy some credit, okay? At least he was alongside Jesus through this whole thing. He might have doubted, but he was with him. But you got Thomas. And think about Peter. We talked about Peter during vacation Bible school and all the doubts that he had. But notice what Jesus does. We just read it a little while ago in verse 18. It says, but some doubted. What, what did Jesus do before he said anything? He came near to them. He came near to them. It's easy for us to say God is near the brokenhearted. It's easy for us to say that, that God is near those who are grieving. It's easy for us to say that God is near those who are in poverty. But can I tell you something based on the authority of this word today? God is still near those who doubt. He's still near you when your faith wavers. He's still near you when you hurt as you serve. Praise God. And he even ends in verse 20. I am with you always to the end of the age. 
Don't miss his presence, church. I tell you this all the time, and I hope it begins to roll off some of your lips. We don't need to ask God to be with us. We just need to ask him to remind us that he's with us. I pray that you are reminded that he's with you today. Two things I want you to do as we come to a close. Two ways I want you to take this home with you. First of all, understand this. If you are a non-believer, this mission is about you. (laughs) This mission is about sharing this good gospel with you, calling you to repentance. And yes, if we get annoying about that as a church, we don't apologize for that. We're going to call you to relationship with Jesus as often as possible because we want you to have a relationship with Jesus. So listen, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, get on board. Get on board. It's as simple as, as admitting, admitting that you're a sinner, trusting and believing that Jesus died for your sins and he rose from the dead to, to grant you forgiveness of sins and then committing your life to follow him. Listen, those who made decisions this week were around the age of 10. So easy a child could make this decision. And even those, who, those children, I feel confident, understood what they were doing, absolutely. So get on board. But if you're a church member, two things you can do, along with me, let me add that, ways that God's dealt with me. First, honestly evaluate your part in Christ's mission. Are you still on board with Christ's mission? Yes, you might have given your life to Jesus, but are you just a spectator? But are you actively plugged into and playing your part in the mission of God through this fellowship? Or if you're visiting with us today, the fellowship you're a part of. Lastly, you know, we emphasize repentance at the moment of conversion, and that is important. But we saw uh, in the life of Jacob in Genesis opportunities of repentance again and again and again. You say, no, wait a minute, that's Jacob. He's walking with God. Yes, there are those occasions in a believer's life where we must still repent because we have strayed from his way. When we talk about the mission of God, we talked about that, um, that unclaimed baggage place. How do you lose some of those things, right? How do you lose those bizarre treasures? How do we lose the mission of God? Here it is. We fail to repent and reclaim the mission of God. That's the call. Every one of us. Listen, until our church as a whole repents and reclaims the mission of God, we will not see the full extent of the mission of God through our church. I'm going to say it one more time. Until our church as a whole, that's all of us, begins with me and flows out in this room, until all of us repent and reclaim the mission of God, we will never see the full extent of the mission of God through this church.